Hi, this is uh, Jerry from the In Squasha podcast. Uh, well, what a revelation this is. I finally uh, picked up uh, a proper mic. Um, so my apologies to the first three uh, podcast interviewees, uh, Ron Beck, Neil Harvey, and uh, Bob Ballinger. The quality of uh, my voice, which isn't uh, very good as it is, uh, was made worse by a uh, poor microphone that I was using from my computer. And uh, thankfully, uh, the IT department at my university has helped me a little bit and uh, let me borrow uh, one of their really uh, cool Yeti microphones, uh, which is uh, fantastic. Um, anyways, the, the sound quality from my end is actually, uh, I mean, it's like night and day compared to the first three. So, and also apologies to uh, Mike Way. Because uh, although the intro to Mike's uh, interview, which is this one, um, will sound uh, much better than the previous three, the actual interview was done a few days ago and unfortunately was on the poor quality of the microphone in the laptop computer. Anyways, uh, I really enjoyed uh, this chat with Mike. I've uh, We've met many times before. Uh, he may not remember me, but I do remember him. Uh, as growing up, he was the coach to uh, one of my nemesis uh, and uh, nemesis. And, um, you know, I, I knew uh, that he was a, a great coach even back then before he was with uh, Jonathan Power. And uh, all of that, uh, the history uh, took place with JP and uh, the rest is history. Uh, but he had made a name for himself much earlier uh, than he uh, than during his days with JP. Um, we go through that. We go through. Uh, uh, we talk about his uh, rivalry, uh, the rivalry between Peter and Jonathan. Uh, we get into a little bit about coaching and uh, what it takes to get to be a top player uh, for juniors these days, and what a good what it takes to be a, a good coach, and how he uh, reached. Uh, the level that he's reached uh, now uh, coaching at Harvard, men's and women's teams. Uh, it was a great chat. We covered a lot of ground. Didn't have enough time to really uh, cover as much as we wanted, but uh, thanks, Mike, for uh, letting me uh, interview you. And um, wow, this new microphone looks good, feels good, and hopefully uh, it sounds good for everyone else compared to the rest of uh, the other three podcasts. So, uh, Enjoy uh, the chat I had with Mike uh, on this uh, podcast. Number one, and uh, as I know, uh, Mike was also, uh, you were also a top player in Canada in the 80s, uh, mid to late 80s, and uh, now currently the head coach at Harvard uh, for the men's and uh, women's squash team. Mike, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. Yeah, you're very welcome. Love talking about squash. Favorite yeah. subject. Great. That's great. Uh, how's everything going at, uh, at Harvard Squash these days? Well, it's always an interesting challenge, and it's, uh, it's never straightforward because, uh, you know, the guys that you recruit are uh, really still boys and girls, and they've got such an academic bar that they've got to uh, maintain. So there's a lot of stress with the academics. Uh, 
But uh, the squads, the culture on both teams uh, the last few years has been excellent and it's the same this year. So uh, we like to think that we're in contention. I think we are, but it's uh, the, we're right in the, just coming up to the, the most stressful part of the season. So we'll, uh, I'll be able to tell you more in six weeks. Okay, and, and you're sort of in the thick of uh, the season then. Uh, where do you stand right now? I, haven't, I didn't look at the, uh, the standings uh, uh, myself. Well, we haven't, been, we, we haven't had the toughest matches yet. Uh, the men have had one very tough match against Columbia. <clears throat> uh, Columbia beat us 5-4. Okay. Um, so that might, uh, that might kiss the Ivy title. Um, but uh, the women are unbeaten, but uh, they've had one tough match against Stanford. And, and as, uh, as you just said, we're in the thick of it and the toughest matches are ahead. So we got uh, Martin Heath comes in this weekend with his Rochester team. They're always one of the best in okay. the league. Martin Heath. And Dre- Martin Heath. And then uh, on Sunday, we've got Drexel, which is uh, head coach is Johnny White. So another PSA, ex-PSA player. How does it feel um, to go be uh, coaching uh, against uh, some of Jonathan's uh, uh, rivals back in the day? <laughs> well, you know the thing is because the college, like, I mean, I mean, it's fun obviously because I've known I've known these guys for uh, for so many years. So there's a, a, on a personal uh, level, I think it's terrific to see uh, to see these guys uh, get into the college scene. The college coaching scene is completely different than anything else and, and until you've been in it you don't there's no real understanding or appreciation of, of what the coaches go through yeah. um, because you hope to recruit the best <clears throat> not just the best players that you possibly can but you also hope that you're recruiting kids of, of good character and that love the sport to the extent that they're going to stay in it for four years um, and they're not going to get distracted and drop out or party too much, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a completely different set of challenges, but yeah, seeing these guys uh, on the other side is, uh, is, is terrific. And the one thing about squash, I think the world over is that uh, coaches, players and ex players, it's quite a tight community. And we see that in college squash, as we do on the pro tour and as we do, as we see in junior tournaments for the most part. Absolutely. Uh, which is partly maybe why uh, I'm speaking to you at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you, you, um, I was going to ask you uh, later on about recruiting, but I, I might as well ask you uh, about it now. Um, uh, obviously, there's a talent to it. And uh, what do you look for when you recruit? Uh, when you go out recruiting, academics is a, a given because it's Harvard, but beyond that. Well, the, yeah, the academic bar, though, if we can't get over that academic bar, of course, we're done. So the admissions office decides whether we're allowed to proceed with certain kids. So it's, it's very straightforward, and I'll bet it's the same for all the coaches. You know, we scan the rankings, and then we attend certain tournaments. So we go to the British Open, we go to the World Championships, the U.S. Open, because it's the biggest junior tournament in the world now. <clears throat> uh, we might cover the Canadian Open, the U.S. Nationals. And through those events, we're watching uh, the best kids in the world. And then also, we're seeing, you know, how do they handle the stress of competition? So if we see badly behaved kids, if we see rackets being thrown, um, if we see dirty players... 
we are probably not going to recruit them. So it, it, wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be a one-off incident, of course. But if we, see a, if we saw a pattern of behavior, we're going to steer away from it. Right. And we do our homework. We, we talk to the coaches um, on the QT. We do our background. And, of course, the kids we've just recruited will know the kids that are coming up for the next year so they know what their reputation is, is like. And, you know, <clears throat> if you recruit, if you make a mistake in recruiting, and every coach does, you will pay for that mistake. And you've got, you've got to be with this uh, student athlete for four years. Yeah. So they can do, they, you know, <clears throat> a big me, as we call them, or a little me, can do a lot of damage uh, to the program and to your reputation with admissions. So it's very, it's the most important part of this job is getting the right kid. Well, you've, uh, you've been coaching uh, <coughs> top juniors for quite some time now. So you obviously, you, you might have quite an eye for, for seeing that type of talent and, and the type of uh, player that you, uh, you see as the ideal type. Uh, I was just thinking, um, there isn't that much in terms of bad behavior as it, uh, compared to the past. Is that a re uh, reflected in the juniors? Do you, do you notice? Uh, these yeah, I agree. I, yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly there. I think the behavior is getting better, but I'll tell you what is, uh, I'll tell you what is looming there for many kids. So this is the number one thing we look for right now. And that is burnout. Yeah. So, when I was a kid, maybe when you were a kid and not too long ago, you know, there was a squash season and kids grew up and they played, you know, myself and my buddies would play soccer. <clears throat> you would do, you did other sports. Yeah. And now we see this specializing happening earlier and earlier as the drive either to get recruited into college um, <clears throat> Or it might be for a young Egyptian kid to, you know, uh, uh, to follow the path that all the other great players have followed. But there's a, there's a balance here. And there are some coaches, not many, but there are many parents that don't, that, that ignore the balance of that. So when you get a kid that's burnt out, the, the trouble with burnout is that it returns for the second and third time uh, in double quick time. Right. So <clears throat> the goal or the job, the responsibility of a good parent, of a good coach is to prevent it. And you prevent it by not uh, overtraining them in the off season. So right. there's gotta be a balance there. And what, I'm, what we're noticing here is that that balance has been lost. It's not just in our sport, of course. You, I would think in America, it's probably that balance has probably gone out the window a number of years ago. Um, but that I would say that burnout is probably the number one thing that we look for in a kid. Um, and if we if we see it, we we don't recruit them. How, how do you see it? You see it <clears throat> when kids um, there's a lesser in, engagement when the stress is up. You'll see it in bad behavior. You'll see it in their relationship. Um, on uh, uh, in their matches, um, you'll hear you'll hear about it through the grapevine. You can yeah. hear about it from the coaches. Uh, and one of the biggest uh, signs, in my opinion, is when kids lose in the main draw 
and they no longer want to play in the consolation. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Or they throw matches. So it's pretty. The one thing about burnout is you actually can't hide it. You can try, but you actually can't hide it. It's pretty obvious to the experienced eye, maybe not to the layman. But yeah. you, it, it, these, these kids can't be behind whatever veil they're trying to do or fool mums and dads and coaches. So uh, we don't always, I'm not saying that we, we spot it all the time, but we definitely look for it. It's one of the, <clears throat> I would say it's top of our list right now. Right. Now, obviously, uh, uh, the Egyptian uh, juniors are uh, high up on your, your list, but uh, are there any other surprises <clears throat> out there besides uh, uh, the Egyptians? Any other sort of uh, any other countries where you thought, oh my, there were a few guys from uh, from this uh, few juniors. Well, <clears throat> they come in they come in waves. They yeah. come in pockets. So you could say that the Egyptian wave is ongoing, you know. But right now, um, you know, we've got uh, we've got kids from India from Malaysia, from Ireland, from England, uh, as well as Egypt. Uh, we've had them from Singapore. We're talking to kids from New Zealand right now, from Australia <clears throat> right now. We've got a kid from, uh, from the Caribbean on the squad. So, and of course, we've got a, a, a bunch of Canadians. Right. So um, they're from all over. And you, you never really know where a kid is. You never know where a kid, since I've been here, we've had two kids on the squad that, uh, that actually hadn't heard of Harvard. I mean, which is, which is really quite nice. It's refreshing when you surprise a kid and, uh, and then they realize, oh, this is, this is a top university and here's an opportunity. And because of the financial assistance that uh, Harvard and, uh, and many other American institutions have, it's, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. It's very exciting for them right. when they come, when they come from a background and they're, and it just comes out of the blue, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, now, uh, Mike, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back a few years, just, uh, very briefly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now back, I was a junior in the, uh, the early mid eighties. In fact, you coached the nemesis of mine, Matt Easingwood. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he had a few battles. Um, yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> you were coaching him. I like you now though. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, but back in the early 80s, there seemed to be, I don't know if it was a large group, but a sizable group of players from the UK, from Australia, who came over to Canada, yourself, uh, Stevie Lawton, Howard, Brune, Willie, I guess Willie Hosey, you were amongst that group. Um, was that sort of a wave in and of itself at that time? I never thought about it like that, but you're right. There was that group. John Fleury was in there. Roy Ollier. Yes. Um, Murray, Lilly by, Murray Lilly, by the way, who right. was seven, seven, eight in the world, was there. Ross Thorne would come in for six months at a time and what have you. And, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. So some guys, you know, legitimately at the top uh, of the tour, as it was then. Remember, the tour was kind of funny. When it was the ISPA days, it was, you know, there were just pockets around the world, but most of the tournaments you know, would be sort of in England, Australia, South Africa. <clears throat> so there were no real ISPA events. And then they slowly came in with the Canadian Open yeah. um, in Toronto and so on. But yeah, there was, a, there was that group of players that went to Canada because the softball game had just taken off. It was very exciting. And we've actually formed a, an association. We had about 20, 25 events a year. 
Yeah. They were all, they were all pretty small events, but um, they were a lot of fun. And, um, and then you get people popping in. I mean, Hunty came over, Jeff Hunt came over <clears throat> and played a few of our tournaments. Uh, uh, I think two consecutive seasons. Um, Dittmar played a few. Yeah. Um, a few of the Brits came over and it just added that little bit of spice. But, uh, and then you had homegrown players. Gary Wake came a bit later and Saba Butt, but you had Gene Turk there, who, in my yeah, opinion, yeah. Gene, Gene Turk and John Fleury, the Irishman, were you know, two of the best. They're two yeah. of the best coaches. They were great players and they were two of the best coaches I've ever worked with uh, in my life. I've probably learned more off those two guys and a few others um, than I did off anybody else. Yeah, there was quite, I mean, back when I was a, a junior, we would travel from Nova Scotia to, you know, for the Nationals. And those programs the guy, uh, where Gene coached, where uh, Flurry was coaching, uh, McCrory, was he another guy? Uh, yeah, yeah, John McCrory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but they had great, great young players back then. So many of them, uh, like Crombie came out of the uh, Alberta. Yeah, those guys. Uh, was it your intention at that time to come over to coach? Uh, uh, well, I came over for a six. I came over for a six-month contract. But I think when you're young and you want to play, no one really wants to coach. You coach because right. you just you're paying the bills and you put all your eggs in one basket as far as what you're going to do. So, um, so it you was came not, over to play originally. No, 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 no. I came over to, I, I, I got a six month contract to coach. And as I, when I landed, I remember the first week I landed, I met Murray Lilly and Roy Olia. Literally in the first week I landed, I didn't know they were here. And then a few guys got together and anyway, the thing just sort of grew and it was, uh, <clears throat> and it was a lot of fun, but it was not my intention to want to stay in coaching. I just wanted to sort of be associated in squash somehow and, and naturally fell that way and, and when and, and when I you know I realized I wasn't going to make any breakthrough or do anything and I had a uh, I had a few juniors who were pretty good so Pat and Graham Riding and Shahir Razik came over from Egypt when he was 10 or 11 yeah. and so I had this group of juniors <clears throat> who were really bloody good this was in and, Toronto, uh, Mike? Uh, this was in Toronto and I just yeah. thought you know what God, it, well, maybe you will stay in coaching if you, and if you're going to do it um, then, uh, you know, I, I set myself the goal as, as, as trying to learn as much as I could. And then I just, I was on a bit of a mission, I'll be honest with you. And I just invited, you know, top coaches um, every year, a few times a year, I invite top coaches in, ex-players to do clinics and camps. Um, I look back on that and I, you know, I, and I didn't do it with, uh, with, with any lofty goals of anything. I just really wanted to learn more about how to be a good coach. And I look back on that and I, and I, I, I thank goodness that I did that because I loved it all. And I, 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 I learned so much from so many different people and it broadened my outlook and my approach. And that's really what started this whole, uh, this whole coaching direction. When do you think this really <clears throat> took off for you? Because it did, uh, I know, in the late 80s, you'd, you'd established yourself very uh, firmly across the country as a, as a top coach. Um, when do you think it sort of... Probably, pro probably mid to late, probably mid to late 80s. Yeah. But it wasn't so much that it was, um, I've got to be honest with you, it wasn't so much that it was knowledge-based. It was more, it was a commitment uh, born out of passion, to be honest. 
I really did and I really do uh, love the game. I love teaching. I absolutely, uh, it still fills me. I mean, you talked about Matt Easingwood just now. So I'm doing a, I'm doing a clinic with Matt in March and I'm going to San Francisco to do a coaches symposium. And we've got, we've got one here at Harvard early next season with Thierry Lanku and Sean Moxon and Dave Palmer. I just did one with Mm -hmm. Dave Palmer a few weeks ago up in, uh, up in Canada. And every time you get a bunch of coaches together, you know, it's a, it's for me, it's an exciting day. Yeah. So it, it was born of passion. Uh, I would say, and curiosity and, um, <clears throat> And I love just bringing people in and, and listening to what they thought of the game and how they taught it technically uh, and tactically and uh, what their emphasis was. And every, every coach has a different emphasis. So coming in there and, and then and you become better through that. But you also become better in large part by, you know, when things are not done well. So if, right. if, if, if you so if, if you look at how I was looking at two uh, two videos that came uh, that came in earlier this week, um, and it was interesting. It was the take of of an ex top player <clears throat> on how to hit uh, on his backhand and forehand drives. And what I found intriguing in those days, and I did earlier this week, was here's this guy, a great player, talking about technique and um, and 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 how he hits the ball. But if you saw a video of this guy hitting the ball in slow motion, he doesn't do anything <laughs> close to what he was describing how to teach it to a kid. Right. And that's, that's really, I've got to be honest with you, that's probably been the most common denominator that I've found, uh, especially with um, ex-top ex players in their early years, is how the game is taught versus how they hit the ball. Right, right. Um, I was just speaking of uh, different people get, uh, learning from different people, different coaches. Uh, uh, and I've seen you on the website as well. Squashskills.com, I think, brings that uh, 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 to the fore uh, in a big way. What's your, uh, what's your impressions of, of that, of what Peter and his group have done on uh, squash skills? I haven't, I'll be honest with you, I haven't seen... Um, I haven't been on uh, squash skills, save the, the little promotion stuff they send. So I, they, they did come up. I haven't seen my lesson on there. I didn't know it was on there. Okay. So. <laughs> I hope it's, I hope it's okay. That's very good. Yeah. But I would just, I, I would just hope that whenever, whenever coaches, you know, do their video stuff, I, I, I wish there was a little more of, of looking at actually what is taking place um with some of the top players <clears throat> there still seems to be this uh you know hangover from how the game was taught the the, the you know the, the the english version of the swing or, right. or the aussie version of the swing and so on i mean one of the best one of the best lessons i ever learned years ago was remak khan came right. over you know he was jahangir's coach and um, and he did a couple of clinics at, uh, at the club in Toronto, the Valhalla Club, and and I posed a question to Ramat. It's one of the best answers I ever I ever heard. I said, "What's the difference between a Pakistani, an Australian, and an English swing?" <laughs> yeah. And he went and he went on the court. He went on the court, and first of all, he he did all three forehand and backhand, and then he broke it down. And I got to tell you, it was one that was one of the best lessons 
I ever got. <laughs> um, and is that uh, partly why Jah Jahangir did as well as he did? Was it uh, Ramat being a, a super? Um, I, I, I don't know that. You know, Jahangir's mm -hmm. basics, you know, he, whether he got them from uh, Ramat. By the time Ramat took over, you know, if my history is serving me well or correctly, I believe that um, Jahangir probably owes that beautiful swing of his to his brother. <clears throat> but right. um, but it didn't matter. But there was definitely a sort of a, a sort of a, a Pakistani approach, um, right. uh, especially on the backhand side. <clears throat> but um, no, it was just the it was just the differences. I, I don't know that you could. I don't know that you could. I, I think Jahangir and Janshir, to be honest, were were just very very rare beasts. I mean, whether you want to put the word unique in front of them, but when you just look at them. Uh, you know, it's just like something very, very different. When you analyze the swing, <clears throat> you can't analyze it and say that there's anything really different from top players today, except the swing is maybe a little, it's quicker now. It's a little more compact. But if you do, when you go into an analysis, you know, grip, wrist, forearm action, and so on, you're going to see all these common denominators that come through. With a Pakistani swing, they do this thing called a slap drive, and that would be, probably the biggest difference on the backhand would be there'd be more slap drives than there would be conventional Western style swings, right. but all top players, whether they're from the West or the East, you actually cannot <clears throat> get away. And this is the thing that's in that intrigue that has intrigued me over the years is the commonalities, not the differences. There's, there's too many, or there were too many top coaches um, and maybe some top players that would look at the differences whether it was in methodology or how they hit the ball versus someone else. And then the words right versus wrong would be used. And I always took exception to that. I said, well, how can you say that this swing is wrong if the guy's in the yeah. top 10 in the world, it's working for him. You so try to learn from what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I find it more interesting to look at <clears throat> what were the commonalities? What were the things that you could absolutely <clears throat> you know, hang your coat on and say, this, this is absolutely correct. <clears throat> so I called it, uh, and I still do to this day, I just call it the pro average box. What is in the pro average box? So give you an example. If you take golf, <clears throat> I don't play golf, but if you, if you take golf, most people know that Jim Furyk has a swing <laughs> that's different to everybody else. So yeah. I would say that Jim Furyk is outside yeah. the pro average golf technical box. And I think most people would agree with that. So if you took a Peter Marshall um, and maybe Johnny White, say, in the early days, or Rami Ashur in the early days, would you put them in that box of pro-average? Meaning, meaning, would you teach that style, that technique, to junior players? And I would argue... If I could... I would argue that you... Uh, I, yep. I coach a young junior now, an Indian boy, and uh, he's quite good. He's 13 years old. He hits the ball well, moves well. And he asked me the other day, I, I showed him something. We did. We were doing some volleys, and he said, Rami has sure volleys from here, not back here. You know what I'm getting at, right? Well, I can't without seeing you, but well, <laughs> I, can problem, I can guess. I can guess. Racket, racket, <laughs> without a backswing. Yeah. Yeah. 
but, 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 but I mean, if I can just finish my point here. So my point yeah, is that if you, you know, if you take a short baggy backswing, okay, uh, on the forehand side, um, you know, say uh, versus a Shabana, <clears throat> and they're both Egyptian, they don't have the same style uh, on that backswing for most shots. But you can't say that one is right and one is wrong. Right. So my point is that as a coach, you, you, I like to narrow it down and say, okay, I'm going to, I actually think that Rami's, I, I mean, I love Rami. How can you not love Rami's technique? And there's no backswing yeah. volley is when he's taking the ball so early and so far in front of him and he's redirecting. <clears throat> you know, but when he used to bring, and I'm not sure if he does, I haven't watched him closely recently, he used to bring his thumb up a bit on his backhand. I mean, I just, so again, you go back to uh, an LJ used to, or LJ did rather, the Dutch player. Yeah. I'm just talking about from a coaching point of view, would you coach uh, your junior groups a technique that a player has been successful with, <clears throat> but in fact, he's the only player, or there's only two or three of them in the top 100 that, that use that style, use that technique. And I would argue that that's not in the best interest of your juniors. But I don't like a narrow version whereby one would say, Shabana's swing is correct, and then take another player, you know, Will Strop's swing is incorrect. And I've, I've heard a lot of coaches over the years, a lot of, uh, or a number of top coaches, differentiate and, and they get into this, what is right and what is wrong. I think we must go a little broader, yeah. uh, but not too broad that we include the Jim Furyk. Exactly, yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you there. Mike, um, now I'd be re I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, ask you a few questions about uh, Jonathan, your your partnership with Jonathan. Um, yeah. Uh, when did you first start? When did you start coaching Jonathan? Um, he was about eighty in the world, and he was probably I would think he's probably about seventeen, yeah. and I would work with Graham Graham Riding, Shahia. Uh, J Jamie Crombie was there. There was a group of them. I wasn't coaching Jamie, but he would come in and train uh, Kelly Patrick. Guy, guys, you may or may not know, but but um, Victor Berg was in there as well in those days. But there would be a group that would train and play um, uh, with me, sort of running the programs. And Jonathan would come in a couple of days a week. And when they played practice matches, I would just say to Jonathan, hey, just, you know, I'm going to yak to Graham between games, nothing personal, whatever, whatever. And then he just simply said one day, you know, what do you notice about my game? And we just started, a, we simply started a conversation. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really how it got going. Um, and then it was, uh, it was a very interesting, a very interesting relationship and a very interesting few years for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, also a great few years. For sure. As yeah. Well. Um, now, there's this uh, image of Jonathan that, and I think it's, it's obviously uh, unfair that he did very little uh, training. Um, yeah, that's that's yeah that, is, that always makes me laugh. <laughs> training, to move like him around the court, but <laughs> set the record straight on that in some way. Well, I would say this. So first of all, he dictated play in most, not all, but in most of his matches. Yeah. So you can say that if you're, uh, 
that if you're dictating play, you're doing less mileage. Um, is that a factor? Possibly. So he wasn't, you would never describe him as an attritional player like you might have said about Peter Nickel in many of his matches. <clears throat> what he had, his gift was his power. Um, his power to body weight ratio was ridiculous. So the kids were, um, he's just so strong and so quick across the middle. So he could volley a lot. But you don't go through tournaments and get to so many finals and win so many titles without being fit. You just can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, <clears throat> but what did he not like to do? Jonathan did not like to run. <clears throat> Jonathan did not like long, boring drills. Right. He didn't like <clears throat> two long sessions a day on the court. How did you so, overcome that, uh, so, given what you had to do to get him where he had to so, go? Well, it was all it was all about the quality. So you never saw you never saw a more intense training session in your life than with Jonathan Power. So what he made up, <clears throat> uh, what he lost, if you like, in quantity, he made up in quality. And his sessions were absolutely the energy that you could see in many of his matches. That that energy, <clears throat> not not manifesting itself in the same way but that energy was there in practice. So he liked pressure sessions and he liked, we, we developed, I still use them to this day, um, uh, a type of circuit training. <clears throat> and we would do pressure sessions <clears throat> and or a match and finish with these circuits. Um, he always worked a lot with Bob Bowers, uh, the strength and conditioning guy in Canada. And we had to make sure he was stretched out. <clears throat> so, would I say that his training was as uh, rigorous and as hard as, as, as Peter Nickel? No way. But was he fit enough to get the job done? He had to be because he did Absolutely. on many, many occasions. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that you could put him with the fittest guys on the tour, but no. you can't do and achieve what he did without having fit. For people to say that he was, you know, he was lazy and he didn't work yeah. hard is, is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, I remember back, I think it was 98, Jonathan won the Hong Kong Open. Uh, yeah. If that, if that, I think that's right. Um, I, and just in my opinion, at that time, and maybe a few years later, he, he was also playing well, but at, at that time, he was at his, I think he was just playing his best squash. Uh, yeah. In terms of the rivalry with Peter, would that have been at that point? Maybe not, I wouldn't say the peak, but like it just seemed to be a little something between the two of them at that time. Where Peter had just come through a few years of he'd just beaten Jancher, taken over the world number one, and then Jonathan comes along and reigns on his parade, so to speak. It, it, would that be uh, how you saw it? I wouldn't say that Jonathan was reigning on his parade, I just you know, um. I mean, it was just, you know, Jonathan was, Jonathan came up very quickly. Yeah. And, and once he got what he needed more than anything from, uh, from someone, whether it was me or someone else, what he needed more than anything was, some, was structure. Um, so to bring in structure and to bring in discipline into how he played, to tidy up his straight hitting, especially on his forehand side, um, so to tidy things up, to bring structure, <clears throat> to bring discipline to his play is what he needed. And so I think everything was in place except those ingredients. 
and and I think that's so. If my role there was really to to set to have a plan and set a bit of direction, so he he looked as if he sort of came up so quickly, and he did. He, he whistled up from I think eighty to number ten in in uh, in double quick time, yeah. but um, but he was always there waiting to happen. I mean the talent was is undeniable, and it was just raw. But yeah, then and then there were a few. <clears throat> there were a few. He would go through a, f- you know, a few tournaments or a few months at a time, where he was just absolutely uh, firing on all cylinders with such confidence. He was really mercurial in those days. Yeah, I think and there that, were little. Uh, there were pockets of it that you could see. It was beautiful, beautiful to watch. And in training, it was absolutely remarkable. <laughs> I bet it was. It really was. It was stunning. In training sessions, it was outrageous. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, I think that right when he won the Hong Kong Open, he, he had had a, a few big wins before that and a few uh, immediately after that as well. Yeah. He well, he won. was freer in the head as well. There yeah. were periods he would go through when he was freer in his own head. And, yeah. and, and we didn't see that except occasionally later on. And later on, of course, you know, he would, uh, uh, he would be his own worst enemy. You know, right. if you're playing those tough matches, not with Peter, that didn't happen too much with Peter, but, you know, I think of some of his matches with Dave Palmer and yeah. a few other guys, and there was some... Well, they tend to get quite, uh, quite physical. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, he, but, but most of all, it was because he was, he, it, it was, it, it was his own block, right? He, um, for him, there were different things that made him click, right? And... Um, and Palmer was uh, Palmer was one of of a few guys that was a bit of a block for him. Peter Nickel was not. He had he had so such respect. It didn't mean he didn't respect Dave Palmer in his game, but he had such respect for Peter Nickel. Yeah. And uh, and I always notice against certain players, he would play. He would be freer to play in his own head because he wouldn't be caught up in any any of the emotional stuff. Right. In a, uh, what would you consider to be if you had to pick a high point? Uh, between uh, in in the years with Jonathan, what would it what would it be? Um, well, I, I, again, I, my memory is not going to serve me well enough to come <clears throat> down to specifics. Yeah. It's just watching him, <clears throat> um, at, as I said, at these different times when he could put things together. Sometimes it would just be for one tournament. You know, you, uh, it might be in Chicago, it might be the Tournament of Champions. Sometimes it was just <clears throat> how he was able to put together. And sometimes he would go on a string of tournaments um, and just play just play outrageously well. So I can't think, I, I can't think as it, it, it would, um, it will go up and down somewhat. somewhat. Obviously, the, um, obviously, the 98 Worlds, will stand out more because <clears throat> because of what he and it always is with all the top players it's not just where they're playing and ha- how they're handling stuff but um but where their heads are yeah. and how they're handling that stress um, i've always heard uh, of the day. commonwealth games gold medal match when he the one that won uh was an unbelievable uh, performance as well yeah I did not. I was not there live for that, but yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, Mike, um, you've been really generous with your time. Uh, just uh, what, 
what's what's up uh, what's coming up for you you mentioned you have a couple of clinics uh, uh, in the future and you've got your your obviously your men's and women's uh, teams anything uh, anything you want to uh, to say before we uh, part ways well you know I mean you know the, the the teams take the teams take priority over everything right now but yeah. uh, as of day of speaking here I'm gonna watch uh, Ali play tonight in the semis and if he gets through i'll probably go to new york tomorrow and watch him in the final if he wins tonight um and then yeah you know do it sorry i forgot he's a uh, i should have brought that uh, <laughs> he's a former uh, harvard guy he is a forward harvard, former harvard guy he is indeed yeah. and he's very proud of that and thank goodness yeah, he wears <laughs> it on the sleeve uh, uh, literally. <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um you must be i mean you must be so proud to see how quickly he's uh, come up in there he He's just, an, he's an impressive player and uh, seems to be a, a great person as well. Yeah, impressive player and a more impressive young man of yeah. terrific character. So yeah, how, uh, yeah, it's not, <laughs> not difficult to be proud of such a young man. Did you Absolutely. see, uh, did you see him uh, uh, getting this far that, this quickly, uh, Mike? Well, well, I did. I don't think he did. I mean, that's the interesting thing about him. I mean, so when we recruited him, First of all, he did not want to come. So that took, that took some persuasion and some thinking. Um, then I don't think, like a lot of the players do, well, I'm not going to develop my game while I'm at Harvard. Then he gets his engineering degree. He did not want to turn pro. His, I'm pretty sure his mom and dad did not want him to turn pro. And God love him, all he's ever wanted to do, and he will do one day, is, do, is give back and do something for his country. Right. And he will use his engineering degree, there's no question. But <clears throat> as luck would have it, uh, which is, this is going to sound <laughs> kind of contradictory, but as luck would have it, Egypt uh, still has, uh, you know, a national conscription for the, for the army. So when he graduated, he had to go and do his uh, national service. Right. So, but after his training, six or eight weeks in the desert, um, because he's an elite player, they allowed him to play squash. And what he decided to do is, okay, I'll play a few tournaments. And I think that it was those few tournaments that uh, the army allowed him to play um, that really showed him that he has what it takes to compete with the best. And I think that's what changed direction. So I'm not saying he wouldn't have turned pro, but he was not. He was more interested in doing some using his degree and doing something uh, with solar energy which is what he specialized in right. uh, back in his uh, back in his home country so yeah i think it's one of, and he'll do that he's going to have he's he's he, you know he's competing now he's going to do he's what is he three or four in the world yeah u.s u.s open champion with his wife Noor, for goodness sake yeah so yeah amazing. he's living the life of riley right now but you know, what is he going to do after uh, he's going to give back Galtier, it's him and Galtier in the, uh, is it semifinals coming up? That's right. Semifinals tonight. Yeah. <clears throat> I think it's him and Galtier. Yeah, sure. But sure, Baggy lost earlier, didn't he? Which was a huge surprise. But yeah, so I think it's Galtier. I've got to be honest, I have not checked the draw. No, I think, I think he's playing yeah. uh, another, Galtier tonight. another Egyptian in the semi, isn't he? No. Uh, oh, Ali is? Moment. Right. I think he's playing Terra. Right. Right. In the semi. That'll be a good match to... Uh, Sort of, uh, I call him an unorthodox player. They're both unorthodox. Yeah, yeah you could <laughs> say that, yeah. yeah. So, 
Well, Mike, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, uh, and thank you so much for your time. Um, and uh, this this will probably go up uh, after the the final, but uh, many thanks for doing this, and uh, all the best with the uh, with the Harvard team going forward, and all the best uh, with everything else. Jerry, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. Cheers, mate. Well, wasn't that a great chat with Mike Way, especially with this new, uh, new nice uh, microphone that I have? I think the quality uh, of my voice, uh, even though the voice quality naturally is not the greatest, but the, the microphone makes it sound a little bit better uh, than it would without it, without the mic. But uh, thank you so much, Mike. Uh, we covered a lot of ground there, everything from uh, some great coaching stuff to uh, his days uh, days with uh, JP and uh, the highlights uh, in their uh, partnership together and uh, what it's like to uh, be coaching at Harvard and, uh, and recruiting uh, for Harvard uh, with, the, uh, with all the talent out there at the junior level. Uh, and thank you, everyone, uh, for listening to the podcast. And stay tuned. We have another one uh, coming up uh, in a few days. Thanks a lot.